we finally get to have the duo, the Tom and Mike show. It feels like a radio show, huh? The Tom and Mike show. So let me, Father Michael White is now here. And Father Michael White, welcome to Rapid City, South Dakota and to our, our pastoral ministry days. Father Mike earned his bachelor degree from Loyola University, Maryland, and his graduate degrees in sacred theology and ecclesiology from Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. Some of our own priests were there. After being ordained a priest of the Archdiocese of Baltimore, he worked for five years as personal secretary to Cardinal William Keeler, who was then Archbishop. During Father Michael's tenure as pastor of the Church of the Nativity, the church has almost tripled in weekend attendance from 1,400 to more than 4,000. More importantly, commitment to the mission of the church has grown, evidenced by the significant increase of giving and service in ministry, and much evidence of genuine spiritual renewal. Please welcome Father Michael White and Tom Corcoran. We've never been called the Tom and Mike Show before. Thank you so much. We are so happy to be here uh, with you in this beautiful part of the country that I've never been to uh, before. Um, I've heard about it, of course, and you hear about this part of the country and associate it with the presidents because of Mount Rushmore, uh, of course, but really it's sort of a uh, birthplace for, for bishops. <laughs> so you're gifting the rest of the country with the wealth of your clergy. Um, many of you uh, are here because uh, you've had the opportunity to read Rebuilt, um, which we launched uh, more than three years ago now, and um, it's been quite an adventure for us. We never expected to write a book, much less publish one, much less find anybody who would read our book, and that uh, subsequently dioceses around the country would invite us to come and speak has just been the, the honor of our lives, for sure. And in the course of the last couple of years, we've been to uh, many places, so many, in fact, you might be wondering when we have time to do our day jobs and take care of our parish. But we always try to be home on the weekends, which is why I couldn't be here this morning, because I, I needed to be at the, at the parish uh, on Sunday. But we do do a lot of travel, and, and we're happy to, to do it. Uh, Atlanta, Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, Oakland, California, Rochester, New York, Washington, D.C., Dallas, Denver, Detroit, Milwaukee, Miami, Louisville, Las Vegas. We actually went to Las Vegas as part of the Rebuild uh, rollout. There was a, a church ministry convention in Las Vegas where we were the keynote speakers. There we were, appearing nightly 
right between Cirque du Soleil and Donnie and Marie. It's been interesting, it's been fun, but let's face it, it can get old fast. Most of the time, Tom and I travel together, and it helps a lot to have a traveling companion, but it still gets old, and it so easily becomes a hassle. Uh, about a year ago, or more now, we were in Chicago for a conference. And we flew out on a Monday evening. We had meetings uh, all day Tuesday, and the plan was to fly home on Tuesday evening. Our flight was due to leave around 5 p.m. We got to the airport in plenty of time because we didn't want to miss it. As we were waiting, a sort of buzz started in the terminal. Hard to say exactly what was going on, but something was going on for sure. It was um, an agitation, a disruption, a disorder, a growing and increasing uncomfortable sense of dis-ease. Sensing this mood and being naturally nosy, I started wandering around the, the boarding lounge and, and over to the display screen where the flights are displayed. And first thing I noticed was that our flight was now delayed by two hours. That was disappointing for sure. But worse, worse was to come. Because as I'm standing there staring at that display screen, as if staring at it would make it change, it changed. Two hours became four hours. We were now four hours delayed. I was so disappointed. I went racing back to, to Tom to tell him the bad news, and then I went back to the display screen where our flight was now listed as simply delayed. No time indicated at all. And then I noticed something really strange. Lots of the flights were being delayed and some were being canceled. And very quickly, pe people, being people started to panic a, a little bit, running around trying to change their flights or take other flights or get out earlier, go to other cities. There was another option when it came to flying back home to Baltimore, and I raced to the ticket counter to see if we could make that change as other people were doing too. It turn, turns out that we could go to Toledo and have a brief layover in Toledo and then fly back to Baltimore. The frantic lady in front of me was explaining it all to, to me. Other people were clamoring to do the same, and then when my turn came at the ticket counter, the agent looked at me and I said, without a thought in my head, I said, can I go to Toledo too? And she said, she said, I've only got one seat left. <laughs> and I said, I'll take it. And she smiled at me. She was a, a, a very reasonable person. And she said, you seem like a reasonable person, so I'm going to give you a little piece of advice, just from me to you. Sit back down and wait for your flight. You don't want to go to 
Toledo. Anyway, it is so easy to get mixed up about where we are or where we're going, about our direction, about our purpose, about our destination. For those of us who are in the weeds of parish life, we've just got to get through the day or our to-do list. We've just got to get to the next weekend. It just keeps coming at us. We don't have a lot of time to do what we're doing today, which is to sit back and to think about our purpose, our plan, and our destination. And so I'd like to take a few minutes this afternoon to do that. Going back to the beginning, which we're told about in the Acts of the Apostles. We read, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to the communal life, to the breaking of the bread and to prayers. All came upon everyone and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. That's Acts 2, 42. The Church of Christ, in its earliest, purest, and most exuberant period, the Age of the Apostles, is described in the first chapters of the fifth book of the New Testament. St. Luke, who wrote the Acts of the Apostles, tells us how the Holy Spirit began shaping the Church through the apostolic ministry. More than any other way, we learn that these efforts were fruitful in two ways. Introducing people to Christ and then helping them to grow into more fully devoted followers, that is, disciples or students of the Lord. And in exactly these ways, they advanced the movement of the kingdom of God in their generation. Because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to advance the movement of the kingdom of God in our generation. This is always and everywhere the fundamental, indispensable work of the whole church, currently fueled by the imperative of St. John Paul's new evangelization. But not everybody exactly knows what that means, the new evangelization. And that's because it's sort of unfolding in our generation. And with our help, under the leadership of our wonderful, our wonderful Pope and our bishops, together we are learning what a new evangelization can mean. And together, it's happening with our help. Probably nobody disputes the basics of the new evangelization, helping people come to know Christ and then develop as, as devoted disciples of the Lord, especially through the Word of God and the Eucharist. Nobody disputes that. The dif difficulty comes when we reach down into the details of building or rebuilding the Church of Christ. It was the legendary architect, Miles van der Rohe, who is sometimes credited with claiming that in any building project, the devil is in the details. And that's where all of us in church work can begin to look at things very differently. 
It's also where we can get mixed up about what it is we're even trying to do. And that's a problem because of what it is we're supposed to be building. Now, if you're going to build anything, anywhere, you need to start somewhere. Somewhere specific. You need a building site. Parish is a geographical term. It's a location. Parish comes from the Greek phrase, parochia, which refers to a collection of neighboring buildings. Your parish is a neighborhood. However compact, as they are in our part of the country, or far-flung, as they are in your part of the country, your parish is essentially a neighborhood. And your neighborhood is where you join the Lord in building the movement of the kingdom of God in our generation. To be successful in building, you have to know your parish, because that's your building site. Your parish, not just your congregation, not just the people in the pews, your parish actually includes people you don't even know, people who aren't currently in the pews. Who are they? What are they like? What are they like? What language do they speak? How do they spend their time? How do they spend their money? What's their culture? Most critically, what do they think about God and faith and religion and church if, in fact, they ever think of such things at all? We admit that we don't know anything about your parish and parishes, and we're enjoying the opportunity these days to get to know some more. But let me tell you a little bit about ours. Church of the Nativity is basically the 21093 zip code, as Tom mentioned. It's, it's not very big by your standards, but it's home to us. A choice slice of North Baltimore County. Maryland is called the land of pleasant living. And if that's true, it must be because of places like our parish. It's a beautiful place, and we love it very much. And there's lots that we could tell you about our community that might interest you, but here's a fact that might surprise you. The majority of people in our parish do not go to church, to any church of any kind whatsoever. The majority of people in our parish do not go to church, and they're Catholic. They're culturally Catholic. That just happens to be the demographic that we're dealing with. The majority of people in our parish are unchurched Catholics. They don't go to church because they don't like the experience. They don't understand the Eucharist, and they're not interested in understanding, in, in learning why they should. And no amount of wishing it were otherwise, or complaining about it, as we did for years, is going to change that fact. On the other hand, humbly learning about why these people have left and what might bring them back is what we need to be about in order to successfully build in our parish. 
But what are we building? Church, right? Churches, right? Well, that's kind of right. At one point, Jesus takes his disciples on a road trip. You know the story well. It's a, it's, it's a great story. It's the biggest journey of Jesus' adult life. And further afield than any of his disciples had ever been before. And they go to an unlikely destination. They go to a place called Caesarea Philippi, which was kind of like an ancient Las Vegas. It was sort of an ancient Las Vegas on steroids. The place was out of control. Even by the standards of the Roman Empire, the place was out of control. The main attraction of this place was a temple that was located in front of the entrance to a grotto that reached deep down into the earth beneath the city. And this temple was dedicated to the Greek god Pan, the Greek god Pan. The call to worship of this particular god, Pan, was wild. I mean, wildly hedonistic. I, I couldn't even begin to describe to you the things that went on in that temple. It would be very interesting if I did describe to you the things that went on in that temple, but it wouldn't be appropriate in this setting. Let's just say it was wildly hedonistic. Locals called the place the Gates of Hades. And with good reason, because it was believed that this grotto was actually the entrance to the underworld, the very gates of hell. And he takes them there to ask them a question, actually two questions. The first question goes like this, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they have no shortage of answers. Answers. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In other words, there's a lot of confusion out there about who you are. Then, he asks the question he's really interested in. But, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up, he replies and says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This is the first time that any of them get it right when it comes to understanding who Jesus really is and what he's trying to do. It's a, it's a big moment. And Jesus takes this big moment to make a big announcement. It's one of the biggest announcements ever. It's one of the biggest announcements of all time. It's the kind of big announcement like God's announcement to Abraham that there is a God. God's announcement to Moses, that there is a law. God's announcement to David, that his throne would last forever. His announcement to Mary, that he's sending his son. This announcement is like those announcements. It's that big. And here's what he says. He says, I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build. Now let's pause a moment there. Because all of us grew up in church and we've heard that before. We've heard it so many times, in fact, 
that we don't really hear it at all or just take it for granted. We know this. So, of course, we know what he's going to say he's building. So let's pause. Think about it. If Jesus was going to name the thing that he intended to build, it's reasonable to assume that he would have called it by some recognizable name, by some traditional name, by some name that these guys could understand or associate with, like synagogue or temple, right? Hey guys, hey guys, come on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a new temple. But that's not what he says. Instead, he uses a very interesting word. A word that's not previously found in the New Testament. A word the apostles themselves had, had never heard of before. He says, I will build my church. Look at that again. I will build my church. And the gates of the netherworld will not prevail against it. Jesus says to his disciples, this is the biggest news of all. This is the biggest news ever. Going forward, this is the plan. And this is the whole plan. For the rest of human history, this is what God is going to be doing. And nobody and nothing, not even the gates of Hades, which we happen to be standing right in front of. How cool is that, guys? We'll stop it. This is the plan. And it's just going to keep on going and growing and going and growing and going and growing and nobody and nothing is going to stop it. That English word, church, is not a translation of the Greek word, ekklesia. The Greek word was used to describe assemblies or gatherings of people in a given locale for some specific purpose usually a civic or community-wide one. Typically, it was used in reference to town hall meetings or the coming together, the assembling of a city council at City Hall for some deliberate purpose that impacted the parochia, the whole community, and not just the ecclesia, the assembly. Here's what it did not refer to building. On the other hand, the English word church derives not from the Greek word ekklesia, but rather from the German word kirk, which is a building. Sorry, not trying to show off. I don't really know any German, and I failed Greek in seminary. So I'm just trying to make a point. There's always been confusion and conflict over this point, and here it is. Christ promised to build an ecclesia, not a kirk. Christ promised to build an assembly, not a building. Jesus was God, and he could do whatever he wanted to do. And he never built a single building. And he never asked anyone else to either. He didn't even fundraise for buildings. He never spent a minute of his ministry raising money to build or maintain churches. Apparently, he didn't come to build churches. He came to launch an ecclesia, a movement, the building project that we join him in 
It's not the construction of a building or the maintenance of a museum. It's not a monument to be viewed or a destination to be, to be visited. It's, it's a movement. And you know what? You know the thing about a movement? It's got to move. And it's a growing movement. And you know the thing about a growing movement? It's got to grow. A growing movement, growing disciples who are gathering more people who are not disciples in order to make them disciples. This is the church that is so strikingly described in the Acts of the Apostles. A dynamic gathering, a powerful movement with with a world-changing mission. All too quickly, in the course of history, unfortunately, a lot of church people started to get in the way. Because that's what we sometimes do. We sometimes get in the way. We don't want to, but it happens. Church people always want to try and control things. We want to try and control the ecclesia that Jesus is gathering. We want to try and contain this movement in our kirks, in our church buildings. The ecclesia is messy. Church people want to make it neat. The ecclesia is unpredictable. Church people want to systematize it and codify it and generally make it entirely predictable. The ecclesia is a work in progress. Church people want a finished structure. Church people want a building. But the ecclesia is a building project. It's a building site. And this isn't ancient history. It goes on all the time in parishes everywhere, every day. We did it for years. Actually, in some instances, working against what Christ was telling us to do. On the other hand, when we give building a try, it's not going to be easy. It never is. It's simple, but it's not easy. So ask yourself the following questions. Or the next time you go to your parish council, throw out the agenda and make this, these questions the agenda instead. Get together with your best leaders and have a discussion about these questions. Question number one. Are we making a measurable difference in our community? Are we making a measurable difference in our community or simply serving our members? Question number two. Are we mobilized for mission or insisting on business as usual? Question number three. Are we here to preserve our broken systems or are we willing to go where God is blessing? Fourth question. Are we simply meeting or are we moving? So some questions. Do we want to stop there or do we want to give them?
Why don't we give you a minute there just to turn and talk to someone next to you and uh, discuss those questions, and then we'll, we'll come back. So just a couple of minutes. We're going to pause here. Uh, these discussion questions are actually found in our book, Tools for Rebuilding. Um, so uh, the, book the bookstore has them in the uh, vendor place. And uh, I, told, I know that they, they can take orders and that kind of thing, so I know we're, we're running low on books, but uh, you can stop by there and, and, and pick it up if you like. Uh, so kind of moving on a little bit, we're talking about the church moving, and that's what we're going to talk about here is then how do we actually get people to move. Just want to back up again just about what the ground we've covered today. Again, that the mission of the church is to go and make disciples. And I think we just have to say that over and over again, because as we said earlier, when we lose our why, we can lose our way. And it's very easy to lose our why. Now, we can express that in, in different ways. We can say that's, um, I like Willow Creek's, uh, how they, they express it. They say, our jobs have turned religious people into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, North Point Church in Atlanta says, that the mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. But again, all these things have this idea of movement. Um, and so we've talked about these three key strategies that we have as a church. That it's, again, think about church from the unchurched people's perspective. Prioritize the weekend. Create a great and excellent weekend exper experience. So today, so this final time, uh, this, this afternoon, we want to talk about moving church people to action. Father Michael talked about the church has got to move, and at the end of the day, since it's people, that means moving people. Um, now, if you think about it, there is, people have one of four different relationships with your church. All right, there's the people in your community who, and they have four different commitments. There's the people in your community, in your parish, who don't go to church, and their commitment is to not coming. Right? Their commitment is to everything and anything else but coming to church. So that's the first group of people. The second group are the people who come to church and they sit and take up space in a pew. We would call them consumers. They come because there's something they get out of coming to church, right? There's, um, you know, they come because, again, they're afraid if they don't come to church, they'll go to hell. They'll come to church because, you know, they want something for their family or their kids. They, they come to church just to consume and whatever they get out of it. The third group is um, your contributors. And these are people that come and they're the ones that give something to the church. They might give their time and service. They contribute money. They contribute energy. They're the people that um, they contribute in some way. They might just contribute comfortably, but they contribute something. And then third are the committed Right? And many of you here today, you are the committed. You are the committed volunteers in your church. You're so committed that you gave up a couple days to be here for this conference. And so often it's those committed right, that, that make the parish run. And we need to grow that for sure. But what, I, what we want to talk about here a little bit is how do you move those consumers, those people in the consumer box, to become contributors, to contribute in some way. Because what I believe happens is when we can move people out of just coming to consume to contribute in some way it creates a spiritual energy that it, and it leaves space for the people who are not coming to church to come but I think when there is just a, a, a critical mass of consumers who don't move that it creates a kind of stagnation in the church so we got to move those consumers to become contributors 
Now, just a couple different, so what we would say this is we got to figure out how we're going to challenge church people that are in the pews. Now, just a, a little, little bit on this, it's okay that people do come and consume at first. That's not bad that people come in and say, I want to do this for me. And, and in some ways, when it comes to God and the church, there's always, you know, we're always in a relationship with God has everything and we need God. That, that never ends. But I, I would even say this, though. It's not bad that people come and say, hey, I know I need God and I want to get something out of it for me. The problem becomes that people remain consumers for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. They never move out of that consuming part. It's also important to know, I don't think it's wrong for people to come for blessing. That, again, in the exchange with God, there's always blessing. As I read through the Gospels, I'm amazed at how many times that Jesus says, when Jesus challenges people or challenges apostles or gives a hard teaching, there's always a promise of reward. You know, think about the rich young ruler. In that case, the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and, and, you know, Jesus, you know, he said, I've fulfilled all the commandments, done everything, done all of them. What more must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, go sell all you have and give to the poor, come follow me. And you'll have treasure in heaven. He doesn't say you'll lose all your money. He says, you'll have treasure in heaven. Well, the rich young man, because he's too attached to his possessions, he can't do that. And then immediately afterwards, Peter comes right up to him and says, uh, Jesus, we've done what that guy couldn't do. We left our nets and followed you. We dropped everything. I left a very successful fishing business and I came and followed you. What's in it for us, Jesus? And Jesus didn't like slap him over the head and say, what are you talking about, Peter? There's nothing in it for you. I just want you to follow. No, he said this. I promise you that whatever you have left, brothers or sisters, money, possessions, whatever you give for the kingdom, you will receive a hundredfold in this life and the age to come. Note that when, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, you know, a nasty, nasty job that only the servants did, he said, you call me Lord and Master, and indeed you should. I am your Lord and Master. And if I washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. And then he said, blessed are you if you do this. So, the experience of blessing is not the problem. It's just, again, the people come and consume, and it's just about them. And it's never about anyone else or ever really about serving God. That's what we need to, to change. And when I really believe that churches become really attractive, that when there are people moving out of that consumer mode to contributing, and then obviously from contributing to committing their whole lives to it. But I really just want to focus on that consuming to contributing. So at Nativity, we have said there's these five steps that are absolutely crucial that we think that everyone in our parish, we will constantly preach and tell people to get on board. And it's actually an acronym that we have. So number one is that we want people to serve. Right? This makes sense. If you want to become more like Jesus, you got to serve. Jesus said, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Right? He got down and washed the disciples' feet and said, this is what you guys need to do. So we want people to serve. Next thing is we want people to tithe and give. Right? That Jesus, 2,000 years ago, in a largely agrarian culture, said that the number one competitor, the number one competitor that God has for the individual's heart, the number one competitor that God has for your heart, it's not the devil, it's your money, 
and possessions. And so, you know, Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart also be. If people are going to grow closer to God and grow as disciples of Jesus Christ, they're going to give. Third, we say is this, that we want everyone to engage in a small group. Uh, Romans 1.11 says, Paul says to the Romans, I will learn from your faith and you will learn from mine. That relationships are key to growing as a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's also key to contributing. You know, in, in my small group, I learn some stuff from the guys that are coming to that group. I know tons more theology. I, can, I know the Bible better than them, but I still learn from their faith and their faith walk and how they live as husbands and fathers, right? So they're, just by coming to the group, they're contributing their life, which impacts and enriches me. Um, so we need friends in faith. Our, our, our friends will influence the decisions of our lives. And if we don't have friends in faith, our, our spiritual life is stunted. Next, we say this, we want people to practice prayer and sacraments. And I don't, I don't know if I really need to quote a verse to this. You know, prayers, I think as a church, we usually understand this and get it right. We know that prayer is absolutely vital um, to growing in a relationship with Christ. And so we want to teach people how to pray and make that a part of their life and contribute their prayer life. And then, and then we, say, so we say practice prayer and sacraments because we, we also mean like, don't just pray pray and it kind of stays segmented, uh, says, stays segmented in your life. We want you to pray so it impacts your daily decisions every day. And then we say you need to share your faith. Share your faith. Uh, evangelize. Um, that's, that's a way we express evangelization. Um, now, the ones we've come up with as a church that we think are the five key steps that we want everyone else to do. And so we are constantly talking about them. They're enculturated. I'm not saying these should be your five steps. Maybe they should. But it's really important that you have a discussion as your parish staff or parish leadership, your parish council, about what it is you want people to do. Because I think some of the problems and struggles we have is we don't always know what we want them to do. I mean, sometimes you read a bulletin and be like, all right, how do I grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, that might mean going and playing bingo. You know, or that might mean going to the potluck supper or going to the fundraiser. That's how do I grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ? If an alien from outer space read your bulletin or read your communication, would they be clear? Okay, these are the key facts. These are the key action steps that make me a disciple of Jesus Christ. They say their mission is to make a disciple of Jesus Christ. Here's what's in their communication. I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, again, I, I would encourage you, our, our field guide has a whole chapter on this to help you bring people together and have that discussion, so you can check that out either at the bookstore or, or, or Amazon. Um, so, and again, as a parish, we always constantly say, what do we want to know? What do we want them to do? To succeed as a parish, we have to be crystal clear about what we want people to do. All right, so once we know what we want people to do, then how do you get people to move? How do you get people to do what you want them to do? And again, first, you need to know what you want them to do, but then how do you get people to, know, to do what you want them to do? So here are seven steps we think are crucial. And these are not rocket science. You're not going to be like, I never thought of that. That's brilliant. How do they come up with it? No, they're, they're incredibly simple. And as Father Michael said, this is all so simple, although it isn't easy. So number one, how to get people to move. All right, moving consumers to contributors. Number one. All right. Come on up. There we go. You got to pray. Right, you're like, wow, I never thought of that. But we, we forget to pray, don't we? 
When it, when it comes to getting people to do things they haven't done before, it's a spiritual battle, just like we talked about with music. That, the, you know, our job is to present things to people. Our job is to kind of make the invitations, but it's the Holy Spirit's job to move people's hearts. Um, we are coming up, we are in the midst of a campaign that we launched a few years ago. So before the capital campaign, the way we launched it was we had 40 hours of prayer. We had 40 hours of Eucharistic adoration. And for us, again, and that was us was to say, this campaign will succeed if we pray. You know, abide in me, as, as John 15, as the kind of theme of the conference. You know, I'm the vine, you're the branches. For a part, you can do nothing. We can't move people if we're not praying. Uh, and, and again, and I think sometimes we think of prayer, it has to be, you know, of course, getting deep, deep on our knees and bowing before God. And we can do that, but prayer can be, you know, I think sometimes we think it's got to be so much and so intense that we just don't do it at all. At least do something. At least be praying to move the people in your community to take steps of faith. Number two, we say this. Again, nothing. Struggling with how to. There we go. There we go. You got to move yourself. Right? That before you can ask anyone else to do something, you got to do it yourself. You know, this past weekend, we had our ministry launch weekend where we, we, Father Michael paints a vision about why we want volunteers. We read that letter I told you about from Josh. But, you know, this past weekend, I was out on the parking lot serving in our parking ministry. And it was great because we could have a little, we do a thing called end notes at the end of mass. And we could have a little banter and say, you know, I talked about, he made, kind of made, he didn't make fun of the parking ministers, but he made it sound so easy and it, and it really is. But I kind of joked, well, I think it's a little more complicated than that and had just a couple of ideas about why that was. But part of the reason I was doing that is I want everyone to say the church, say, I'm out there parking cars on Saturday night because this is important. You know, when it come, came to the capital campaign, the first two people who made a commitment to the campaign were Father Michael and ourselves. And that actually informed how we asked the rest of the community because we asked them to do exactly what we had done and how we, the process we had gone about it. So if we don't move ourselves as leaders in the church we kind of lose our moral authority to ask anybody else to move. So we just got to make sure every time we're asking people to move that we move ourselves, which leads to the next one. And again, this is, this is brilliant. But if you want people to move, you got to ask them to move, right? It's the kind of joke about the perfect, the perfect new, we had a joke about the perfect new um, parishioner, that they would just like walk in our doors and like, hey, can I serve here? I'd really like to serve. And, and really, I want tithe and give 10%. How do I do that? You know, and, and hey, do you have any small groups? I will meet whenever small groups meet. I don't care. And hey, I want to be praying for the church. Tell me what to pray. And then, hey, I want to invite friends and family to the church. You know, like we, we had the perfect parishioner and how that would be awesome. We thought about doing a funny video, but it would be humorous because nobody comes in the church saying, I want to do all these things. I mean, sometimes it happens, but it's very rare. No, we got to make an invitation. We got to ask them to move. Now, how we ask people is very important um, because we are asking people to move outside their comfort zone. And so we have to ask them in the right way because what tends to happen in our churches is we ask out of our neediness. Please, 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 we're broke. Give us your money. Oh, please, 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 we have no Sunday school teachers. Please come and volunteer. Right? We ask out of neediness. People don't give to neediness. People give a vision. So when we're asking people to move, we got, we got to paint a vision. First of all, paint a vision of what it'll accomplish in their life. 
You know, if you start giving as God calls you to give, you're going to see God's blessings over your finances. You're not going to worry so much about them. You know, if you come and serve, you're going to make an impact on people's lives. You're going to change lives. If you come, you know, if you get involved in a small group, you're going to see yourself refreshed and renewed and meet some people you're really going to like. You know, we've got to tell them, paint a vision going to accomplish in their lives, and then paint a picture of what it's going to accomplish in the lives of others. Because people, I believe, most people are good. They want to make an impact. It's not all about them. But we just got to show them how they can make an impact. So, you know, that letter from Josh, we saved that. If you're a children's minister or a student, you know, in youth ministry, and you ever get a note or a letter from someone, your work or your parish has impacted them, I mean, you save that. That's gold. And the next time you're trying to get a volunteer or get somebody to volunteer, it's like, hey, I just want to send you this note from one of the students and how we've impacted them. I want, you to, I want you to experience the same thing. I want you to impact students in the same way. You know, if you're raising money for the church, say, look, here's somebody this church's life, this person, here's a life this, pers- this church has touched personally. We want to repeat this story over and over and over again, but it only happens because you give to our church. Like, testimonies are gold, and as shown by some of the videos here, Another thing we say about this when it comes to asking them to move, move have seasons of asking. All right, so I mentioned this past Sunday was our ministry push weekend. So usually March or April, that's when we go to the whole congregation and say, hey, we're starting to recruit volunteers for next fall. We'd love to have you get involved. Um, in January, we do our small group launch. January and then September in the fall, we have a small group launch. We say, hey, people are joining things, get involved. Uh, Stewardship Sunday is always the weekend before Thanksgiving. It's where we, we whole weekends dedicated to getting people to give to the church, inviting people to give to the church. Um, so have seasons of asking. Uh, also, when it comes to asking, we need both, of the, both preaching. So pastors and from the pulpit, you don't understand how important your preaching is in getting people to move. I think that's the air cover to the ground war, which is the individual ask that we need to be constantly inviting people uh, into our ministry and into our work. So ask them to move. Uh, number four. Make movement accessible. Make movement accessible. Another way we put this is, is put rungs on the ladder. Put rung, lower rungs on the ladder so people can easily climb up. Um, so make it easy for people to do what you want them to do. You know, you know if you want to forget we have, you know, automatic worship offerings so people can easily give. Um, you know, we do talk about, on giving, we do talk about tithing, but we say, hey, look, don't start with 10%. You don't have to start with 10%. Work your way up there. Start with 1% of your income. All right? Okay, that's accessible. I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little intimidated by 10%, but I can give 1%. You know, in, in volunteering and in, in ministry, you know, again, what we pushed for this weekend, and we had conversations back because we have some needs in our children, you know, you know, big needs in the children's student ministry that takes a greater commitment of time. And we talked back and forth. And Father Michael was like, no, I'm trying to get the people to park and greet. We'll move them along later, but let's get people parking. Let's get people greeting. Let's give people the small steps to take. So again, people are like, I don't know. I don't have any skills to be, to do par- to be a minister, to serve. We're like, well, can you do this? Can you smile? Yeah. You can be a parking minister. Can you open doors and smile? Yeah, you could be a greeter. Just really simple things. And again, get people in the door, we can challenge them further, but let's just get them serving. Make movement 
accessible. Number five, we got to set them up for success. Set them up for success. Okay, then when people do come to serve, do they have all the tools they need to serve? Is there somebody there, especially the first time, to greet them? One thing we found when it comes to volunteering in ministry, one thing we've learned by studying places is that the first 30 days are critical. The first 30 days, if, they, if someone does not have a good experience, if they're not welcomed into it, if they don't have what they need to succeed, even though they signed up to serve, they'll fall off. So we've got to set them up for success right away. And for us, that means in serving, we have a, pers- a contact person for them. You know, for, in giving them the tools they need to succeed. You know, what, again, money, automatic worship, great way to set people up for success. That, you know, the EFT comes right out of their account. They don't have to think about it anymore. It's easy. You know, prayer, we send out a daily email right into their inbox. Very accessible, very easy. Set them up for success. Um, number six, celebrate movement. A day late and a dollar short on these things. Celebrate movement. Again, for us people, when people do something, some of these things we are asking people to do is just something stuff we take for granted. We served all, you know, we've served for a long time. You know, we've been giving for, it just becomes natural to us. It's not natural to them. And so we need to sell people when they take those steps. So uh, sometimes uh, Father Michael will always carve out time just to go say hello to people who have just served to volunteer in ministry. You know, send thank you notes to people begin giving to the church. Uh, Jackie Guider, our small group person, if people join a small group, she's sending them emails to encourage them. You know, it was true at Kathy who said this, what's the telltale sign that somebody needs encouragement? How do you know if somebody needs to be encouraged? They're breathing. <laughs> Everybody needs to be encouraged. And in celebrating people's movements, celebrating what they've done, encourage them. And then finally, number seven, persevere. Gosh, come on up. Persevere. Uh, I remember the first time we did a webinar after a book was published and I talked about some of these things we talked about with you and somebody wrote in with a question. So how long does this take? 45, 60 days? We're like, no, it, it takes a few years, right? You got to persevere. It's long obedience in the same direction. Keep turn, as Jim Collins talks about in Good to Great, keep turning the flywheel, turning the flywheel, turning the flywheel. I mean, we're still working on our systems and structures on these five steps. We, we know we, we got to keep improving them and keep making it easy and keep looking at it. But again, if you bring the consistent message over and over again, this is what we want you to do. And on the weekends, people come and, and you have time and you build trust. People will do what you ask them to do. I don't think our community is any, uh, we have a great community of people that do what we ask them to do. And I don't think it's because they're any better than your community. I think it's because it, we've persevered all the time and there's been a clear message. And so I'm on board. So I think we're at time for questions. Uh, right there, about a minute late. Good. All right, so we want to open up uh, for question Q&A right now. Uh, in that, a group of questions, the first group, I forget what to title it, but uh, it was question number three about um, being, going where God is a blessing. If we wanted to just maintain what we're doing, our broken structures, or do we want to go where God is a blessing? What did you mean by that? I think I found over and over again uh, as pastor that I had uh, 
very clear ideas about what I wanted and what I didn't want and where I wanted the parish to go. And uh, I could become very intransigent about what I wanted um, and very uh, intolerant, not at all open to other possibilities. That was one of my biggest problems um, as, a, as a new pastor. And it took a time and, and some help from others uh, and, a, and a lot of missteps before I'd say, well, is this really what God wants us to be doing? Or is this just what I want to happen? And um, I began to discover that they were not always the same thing. Yeah, a great example for that. Sorry to point one out for you. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think music was like that. Um, especially, you know, Father Michael has a great appreciation for, for classical music and the great tradition of the church with music. And we kept, and I mean, in every single way, kept trying to make that part of our church until eventually I think God just stripped it away. I think that eventually it, we, it, the, the person who did it resigned and left. We brought somebody else in, and he kind of went, and it, it just kind of eventually came that way. And at some point you got to say, okay, God's teaching us something here. God's trying to tell us that the music we have now is the direction he's leading us. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I absolutely would. I, the, I invested years worth of time, energy, uh, a, a good portion of our budget. Uh, we promoted this music program at every turn. We highlighted it. We made it the centerpiece of parish life. And, and nobody wanted it. Nobody was, was buying it. And so when we finally said uh, we need to go in a different direction, the whole thing just started to take off. Right. So I could think about... Uh, uh, capital campaign that Tom referenced that we're currently in the middle of. It was originally our intention that we were going to do this previously. And if we had forged ahead with our will and our way at that particular time, we probably would have been far less successful with that effort than we are now because we sensed God telling us at a certain point, wait hold on. It's not time yet. It's not what we wanted to hear, but it's what he was telling us. And when we waited, and then later undertook the project, God was blessing it in his time. So what I want as pastor and what God wants are not necessarily the same thing. Just a quick question. Um, in the very early part of your discussion, you talked about the growth of the church that occurred. Um, I'm just curious as to, were those our unchurched Catholics coming back, or are we talking new converts that came into the church, or a combination? No, uh, our, we are very clear we do not want to steal fish. We're not trying to steal from other churches. Um, we, we, so, the, yeah, a lot of it's, it's, it's people coming back to church. If you come to our, our new, new member class, it's people that stop going to church. Now, that certainly happens. Other people come from different churches, but it's new people coming in or people have given up on church coming back. And, and it's true. We acknowledge, especially in our part of the world where churches are so close together, it's very easy for people to church shop. 
But we're not really interested in, in appealing to that or getting into a uh, 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 conflict with neighboring parishes. There are enough people. I say to my uh, neighbors, the, our neighboring pastors to the north and to the south of us, there are more than enough unchurched people in our community to fill all three of our churches many, many, many times over. We don't have to worry about stealing parishioners. Thank you for being here. Um, it feels often in, your, in the book and uh, in your talk that this is very organic. Where does strategic planning fit into your church building? I, you know, I don't think we've done a lot. I mean, we've done some strategic planning, but I don't, yeah, you're right. It hasn't been driven by a grand strategic plan. Um, it's been kind of, our, our growth was really just learning and applying, learning and applying, learning and applying. Um, you know, we did do a, a strategic plan a little while ago, and, you know, that's where we, we realized we needed to build a new building. But that was after all the growth. That was how to, to ex, you know, take away growth obstacles. I really think a lot of it's just, again, very simple things. And, and I, not that strategic planning is bad, but I think sometimes, going back to that quote from Switch, we see a grand problem and we think, the, they talk about directing the rider, or the mind thinks there's got to be some grand solution. It's not. It's very simple things done over a long period of time. Great question. I'll up. Um, in that sense, uh, learning and relearning, how, do you, how does your evaluation process look, at, look like? I mean, um, Clearly, if you're learning something, you say, this isn't working, this is. How does that look like? Um, we're doing it constantly, all the time. Part of what we do every single week together as a, as a staff is sit down on Monday morning and look at the weekend um, and everything that happened on the weekend, from mass to meetings to events, and evaluate how they went and where they went wrong uh, and just try to be honest about that with one another and hold one another accountable. Uh, there's another uh, discussion that we have on Mondays about my homily uh, where some of the staff are present and we talk about it. Sometimes we even watch it, which is incredibly painful, but it's a great way to improve as a speaker. Um, and I'm held accountable for uh, what I said. So I think a big part of it is accountability and, and honesty. I know when we were getting it wrong for a long period of time, uh, such as we were with that music program, we just kind of lied to ourselves. We wanted it to work so badly that we just kept telling ourselves, it's working, it's working, it's working, and it wasn't working. So we've gotten much further, much faster when we have just you know, determine that we're going to be honest with ourselves, however painful that that is. Yeah, and just one thing, kind of a little more in our story back, that the 5.30 Sunday night mass, we'll talk a little bit about this more tomorrow, but it was kind of where we tried a lot of new things, and because it was a youth mass, and it was easy to, to kind of beta test there and try things, and we ruthlessly evaluated that. We spend a large, we spent a bunch of time evaluating that. So in some ways, if you're trying to make a change, maybe you just put that one thing in and just spend an inordinate amount of time evaluating it mm -hmm. and then get that right and then you'll learn lessons for the other the rest of the church. Yeah, I think that that's a good point too is just to, to, to say, it's, somebody was saying to me, with all of this, it's, it's overwhelming. Where to start? 
Well, obviously, you start somewhere. You start with one thing, and you invest everything you've got in that one thing. And people will say to you, and you will say to yourself, this is unsustainable. We can't put this much time or energy or effort or money into this one piece. And it's true, you can't over a series of years, but you can initially. And you can get that to a place where it is just golden. And then you can go on to another piece. All right, so that's a season, all right. I actually have uh, perhaps a two-part question, one that harkens back to something that this was is not addressed Mary. earlier. Yes, sir. Ireland. Yes, sir, Mary wow. Ireland, quite the country. <laughs> uh, the one is, I don't know how to really properly word it, but how do you determine the proper allocation of resources of time and staff, energy, et cetera, among those projects that are specifically mission oriented and those that perhaps might be described as more oriented toward fellowship, uh, tour groups or playing cards or something. Fellowship's important, but how much does that add to or detract from limited resources and time budget? Well, one thing I'd like to say about allocation of resources, whether it's time or money or staff support, is don't make the mistake of trying to be fair. Don't think that if I've got X number of dollars, I've got to fairly distribute it out over these programs. Be unfair. Take that money that you've got and invest it disproportionately in something you're trying to change and move forward. Same with your time, same with your staff support. Uh, that said, in terms of balancing priorities with it, yeah, so you mean like by reaching new people versus developing the people already in the pews? Sure, because yeah. they're obviously there obviously is an, an immense need for fellowship for those who are church or unchurched, and you can surely bring people into community that way. But if there are uh, other priorities, as, I, as it, something that was not addressed earlier, though I'm sure you do, adult ed or reaching out for young adults or types of things like this, how do you decide where to spend, for lack of a better word, well, those resources? I, all I can say is that our priority would always be the unchurched. The unchurched, okay. Our priority would always be the unchurched, right? Because the, the easy kind of, again, the drift of the church is going to be always towards church people. That, again, that said, I think on your fellowship question, I think we've got to be careful what do we mean by fellowship and investing in that. Is it really, again, the point is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. So for us, our small groups is the point, place where people get connected and they have fellowship and have relationships. You know, our cafe after mass is a chance for people to connect. Um, but we don't invest a lot of time in other events that... You know, it might be bringing people together, but I don't know it's really growing their faith. We had a, um, a, a group that called themselves the Ladies Club. And they got together once a month, and they would have some speaker come in to talk on uh, some topic of interest to them, but uh, no relationship to faith or church. And then they would have tea and play cards. And that was fine. Um, but after I was at the church for about six months, the president of this club came to me to complain. The former pastor had always attended their club meetings, and I didn't go. And that was a problem. And I said, well, why do you need me there? She said, well, you know, because you're the pastor, you're supposed to be there. <laughs> By which she meant... 
that your presence is going to validate this gathering, which I suppose is true, but it was unnecessary. Mm -hmm. It was an unnecessary use of my time. Mm -hmm. And so that was not very well received, but I think it sent a good message that this was not going to be my priority. They could meet. I, didn't, I never stopped them from meeting, but they didn't need me and my time and our staff time to do it. Your focus is on the mission. So, okay. All right, well, thank you very much.